Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's March 2022. In this episode, I examine the recent settlement of litigation brought against the Remington Firearms Company by parents of children who were killed in the Sandy Hook mass shooting in 2012. Firearms manufacturers are generally protected from this kind of tort claim by a broad federal law enacted by Congress in 2005. That federal law, however, has an exception for state law claims based on improper marketing practices, and the parents' claims in the Sandy Hook case were grounded in that exception. In this episode, I consider whether a state legislature could pass a law about the sale of firearms that is similar to Texas's SB 8 law about abortion, and that it would rely on private actors for enforcement rather than the state. Specifically, I examine whether lawsuits based on such a law could be connected to the marketing exception that the Sandy Hook plaintiffs successfully relied upon in bringing and settling their liability claims against Remington. Later this year will be the 10-year anniversary of the tragic events at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. The shooter used an XM-15 rifle sold under the brand name Bushmaster made by Remington. In February of this year, 2022, Remington, or more accurately Remington's liability insurers, as Remington had gone into bankruptcy in the meantime, agreed to pay $70 million to settle claims by parents of children killed by the XM-15 rifle in the Newtown shooting. What were those legal claims? Lawsuits against gun manufacturers have not done well in court over the last 15-plus years, and the reason is a federal law called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, enacted by Congress in 2005 and signed into law that year by President George W. Bush. Its key provision is straightforward. Courts must dismiss what the statute calls a Qualified Civil Liability Action, which it defines, paraphrasing slightly, as a civil action brought by any person against a manufacturer or seller of a firearm resulting from the criminal or unlawful misuse of that firearm. That is broad language and has proven to be an insurmountable obstacle in a number of cases. What did the Newtown plaintiffs do? They sued based on a Connecticut consumer protection law, arguing that Remington's ads for the XM-15 encouraged unlawful behavior, Rambo-type action. By focusing on that Connecticut state law, the Newtown plaintiffs sought to take advantage of an exemption in the federal law. What does the federal law exemption from liability specifically say? 15 U.S.C. section 7903, and it says that the federal law's protection shall not include an action in which a manufacturer or seller of a qualified product knowingly violated a state or federal statute applicable to the sale or marketing of the product and the violation was a proximate cause of the harm for which relief is sought. Goes on to give two examples, one related to a failure to keep a required record about firearm sales and the other involving a sale to someone who's barred as a matter of law from owning a firearm, such as a convicted felon. Given the focused nature of the two examples in the statute, it's a fair question whether the law's broader reference to sale or marketing of the product was intended to reach a general consumer protection law. And in the Newtown litigation, the trial judge concluded that the plaintiffs had failed to state a claim. The Connecticut Supreme Court saw otherwise, however, and reversed that ruling in the 2019 case of Soto v. Bushmaster Firearms. It made two key holdings that summarized in the introduction to its lengthy opinion. The first addressed the Connecticut Consumer Protection Law itself. And here the court said, it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I want to lay it out because it's a thorough analysis of how the court saw the legal claim. They said, 
The plaintiffs have offered one narrow legal theory, however, that is recognized under established Connecticut law. Specifically, they allege that the defendants knowingly marketed, advertised, and promoted the XM-15 E2S for civilians to use to carry out offensive, military-style combat missions against their perceived enemies. Such use of the XM-15, or any weapon for that matter, would be illegal, and Connecticut law does not permit advertisements that promote or encourage violent criminal behavior. From there, the court went on to address the scope of the relevant federal law exemption that I was discussing a moment ago. Here, the court said, again, a bit of a lengthy quote, but a thorough one, so I wanted to lay it out in its entirety for you. Following a scrupulous review of the text and legislative history of PLCAA, we also conclude that Congress has not clearly manifested an intent to extinguish the traditional authority of our legislature and our courts to protect the people of Connecticut from the pernicious practices alleged in the present case. The regulation of advertising that threatens the public's health, safety, and morals has long been considered a core exercise of the state's police powers. Accordingly, on the basis of that limited theory, we conclude that the plaintiffs have pleaded allegations sufficient to survive a motion to strike and are entitled to have the opportunity to prove their wrongful marketing allegations. To summarize then, the court said that the plaintiffs stated a valid claim under Connecticut state law because Remington's ads promoted illegal behavior and the plaintiffs were directly harmed by that conduct when Adam Lanza acquired one of the advertised guns and shot a number of people with it. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to review that case and with this ruling in hand, the Newtown plaintiffs were able to proceed with their lawsuits and ultimately reach the settlement that was recently announced. The Connecticut law at issue in that case was a fairly typical state consumer protection statute. In Texas, we have the Deceptive Trade Practices Act, and most states have some variation of a law like that that protects consumers from sharp dealing, unfair and deceptive ads, and that sort of thing. What if, however, you had an entirely different kind of law? That leads me to SB8, the Texas Anti-Abortion Law, enacted in 2021. Section 171.208 of that law allows a suit for a civil penalty to be brought by anyone in Texas who's a competent adult who is not associated with state government against, and this is the exact language of the law, any person who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion. The ingenuity of this provision, now confirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court, is that it prevents a review of the law's constitutionality until the end of the case, after damages have already been awarded. If a defendant contends that the application of this law to him or her violates Roe v. Wade or Planned Parenthood against Casey, they can raise that argument on appeal, but they cannot raise it in a preemptive challenge to the constitutionality of the law in federal court because the enforcement is solely done by private actors. Imagine a revision of SB-8 or a structure of a law modeled on SB-8 that allowed private citizens to sue any person who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of a firearm sale calculated to encourage unlawful use of that firearm, or language like that. Setting aside other potential challenges to such a law, the Soto case from Connecticut raises two points relevant to how that law would interact with the federal statute, the PLCAA. As to the exemption itself, Soto provides a roadmap. States have an interest in regulating and discouraging advertising that encourages people to break the law, and that sort of law is, in the language of the federal law, a statute applicable to the sale and marketing of firearms. Again, reasonable minds can differ as to whether Soto read the exemption correctly, given the limited nature of the two specific examples that the statute gives of that kind of law. But Soto does offer a thoughtful analysis of the issue and helps frame the drafting of such a law. 
However, the hypothetical firearms SB8 law would define the conduct at issue, it would need to track the language of the statutory exemption with an eye towards the way that exemption was read by the Connecticut Supreme Court in the Soto case. Now, as to the overall statute, it is a fair question whether the federal law applies at all to our hypothetical statute. Its reference to the unlawful misuse of a firearm seems intended to address the shooting of the firearm and injury resulting from that rather than its sale. The observation thus leads to a decision for anyone who would draft an SB8-like statute in this area. If the law focuses on liability related to the sale of a firearm that causes injury by its use, the law will be less subject to challenges based on standing. The plaintiff's injury will be less general in nature, more tied to a specific event as they were obviously in the Sandy Hook claims, and that's the kind of situation where a court would be more inclined to find standing to sue. But that benefit would come at a cost, since then the statute would more clearly fall within the scope of the PLCAA as activity, quote-unquote, resulting from the claimed misuse of a firearm. If, on the other hand, the drafters of our hypothetical SB8 firearms law wrote it more broadly to include marketing activity that is not linked to a specific shooting injury but is itself simply deceptive advertising or unlawful advertising, the opposite observation would hold true. This broader statute would have a better argument against the PLCAA applying because it would have less of a connection to the statutory requirement of unlawful misuse of a firearm. But at the same time, the statute would face additional standing defenses because the parties bringing suit under the statute would be asserting a more generalized type of injury, and courts are less likely to find a plaintiff that has standing to sue the more generalized his or her claimed injury is. One person who sees an ad that is inappropriate or that potentially advocates violent or unlawful conduct is really no different from any other person who sees it. That broad number might be sufficient to convince a court that there was a lack of standing to bring a claim under this statute. Now, while we're drafting hypothetical statutes, let's consider one more provision. What if, in response to the hypothetical law, Congress amended the PLCAA to expand its scope to clearly cover claims about marketing? Here again, SOTO from the Connecticut Supreme Court does not directly answer that question, but provides a map for a potential answer. SOTO explores the generally recognized history of consumer protection law as a subject of state law. We heard some of that in the quotations I offered earlier. And in our constitutional framework, general business law is traditionally seen as a police power type of issue retained by state government under the Tenth Amendment. Indeed, in the quotation I offered from Soto a minute ago, it expressly referred to Connecticut's police power as a state. In other words, if Congress amended the PLCAA and broadened its scope in response to an SBA type of law, the kind of historic analysis used by Soto could form the foundation for a Tenth Amendment-based challenge to that amended federal law as intruding on a type of regulatory issue that's reserved to state government or the Constitution. In sum, then, the Sandy Hook litigation is not a perfect roadmap for someone who wants to adapt the machinery of SBA to firearm sales. Practically, the insurer's willingness to settle in that case was obviously influenced by Remington going into bankruptcy, and legally, the Soto case is only the opinion of one state's Supreme Court. Exactly how its analysis would map onto an SB8-type statute in the firearm setting depends on the specifics of how that statute is drafted, exactly what conduct is at issue, and the nexus between that conduct and actual injury from use of a firearm as opposed to simply advertisement. It also depends on how Congress might respond to any such statute by amending the federal law, the PLCAA. That said, 
the analysis of the Connecticut Supreme Court in Soto led directly to a multi-million dollar settlement of serious litigation about the Sandy Hook mass shooting. And given that track record, it seems reasonable to conclude that it will guide any efforts to draft an SBA type law related to gun sales and to defend that law against congressional attempts to overrule it by expanding the current federal liability law related to firearm sales. Today on Coal Mind, I examined the recent settlement between the Remington Firearms Company on the one hand and the parents of children killed in the Sandy Hook mass shooting in 2012 on the other. The parents' claim was grounded in a state law about firearms marketing, which in turn placed their claim within an exemption to the broad federal law that generally insulates gun manufacturers from lawsuits about gun use. Comparing that Connecticut state law to the machinery of Texas's SB-8 about providing assistance to abortions, Comparing that Connecticut state law to the machinery of Texas's SB-8 about providing assistance related to abortion, I conclude that if the Connecticut law in fact fits within that federal exemption, a good argument says that a new law about firearms marketing structured like SB-8 would also be able to take advantage of that exemption. The degree to which it would fall within the exemption depends on the specific definition of the relevant conduct and how closely that conduct is tied to the misuse of a firearm as opposed to a more general injury related simply to marketing. In upcoming episodes of Coal Mind, in addition to episodes focusing on specific court cases and legal issues, I look forward to bringing you more interviews with knowledgeable observers of the legal world as we return to some normalcy after the pandemic, such as my recent interview with jury consultant Jason Bloom and another with interior architect Ann Niffen. If you like this episode, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is also now available on Amazon Music if you like to use that service. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.